Good morning, everyone, and a very warm welcome to Hillhead at the Grosvenor. Please stay and have a cup of tea or coffee with us at the end of this service. I think most of you uh, heard the news that Katrina's mother died on Wednesday evening, and so Katrina is, instead of being at the Baptist Assembly um, this week, is uh, down arranging the funeral for her mother and just being with her family. So we're particularly grateful to Andrew for leading our worship this morning. We don't have the screen today, but everything you need to follow the service is on our printed order of service. Just a wee reminder that if you weren't able to return your Christian aid envelope with your donation last week, um, please make sure that you put it in the bag this morning along with your offering. And if you didn't get an envelope at all, there are still plenty here on the communion table. So please do take one and you can still return that in the offering bag next week. Also, if you've completed the quiz sheet, uh, please make sure you hand that to Barbara. I think it was quite a stinker of a quiz this time. Uh, So I don't know if anyone's managed it, but if you've had a go, please return it to Barbara along with your £1 entry fee. And all the answers, I'm told, not generated by me, will be in the key uh, next time. Our evening service today at 7pm will be held in Wellington Church, and that service will be led by Adele Houston. Just a wee reminder to the managers that the managers' meeting is on Wednesday of this week and that's at 7pm in Margaret's home. Then next Sunday at 11am, please don't come here. Uh, We're having a joint Pentecost service with Wellington Church and all being well, uh, that service will be led by both Katrina and by the Reverend Roger Sturrock. So all being well, we'll be in Wellington Church next Sunday at 11am. And now listen very carefully. We have been asked to wear something red. Apparently this is a Wellington Church tradition on Pentecost. Now don't panic. You don't need to go and buy something special. It could be a red scarf, a pair of red gloves, a pair of red shoes if you happen to have them, a hanky that you could put in your pocket. Anything red just as a symbol of Pentecost. A red tie maybe? Keep thinking. There'll be anything Small, any little indication in red for Pentecost. And then at 7pm next Sunday, Roger Sturrock will also be leading the evening service in Wellington Church. These are all our notices. Well, good morning. I stand before you as a familiar face in perhaps an unfamiliar position. But, of course, our thoughts uh, are with Katrina, our regular minister this morning, as she deals with her difficult situation down south. I don't pretend to fill her shoes uh, this morning, but I am extremely grateful for the opportunity to lead you in worship this morning. So, for our call to worship... The Lord God has called us to gather as his witnesses. In the same way, John the Baptist bore witness to Christ, saying, This was he of whom I had said, He he who comes after me ranks ahead of me, because he was before me. 
So we too gather to testify along with all the heavens and all of nature to the one who came before and the one who comes after, the Alpha and the Omega, the risen Christ, present with us now in his spirit. Let us rejoice. We begin our worship this morning with the hymn from Baptist Praise and Worship, God of the Morning, at whose voice. Let us stand and sing. time of prayer, an invocation to the Lord, and as as our usual custom here, and I think most of you are familiar with this, we will finish with the Lord's Prayer said collectively, and we invite each of you to say the Lord's Prayer in the most natural tongue that comes to you, um, whether that's English whether that's Nigerian, whether that's any other language. We speak um, in anticipation of the Pentecost multilingual event. And this is a small representation of the kind of um, spirit-filled prayer of many languages that we represent here today. So, let us pray. On this morning, dear Lord, as we anticipate the event of Pentecost, we attune our hearts to that which we cannot see, your spirit in all its dynamic 
and life-giving power. We confess the unseen often troubles us in its mystery and in its uncertainty. We confess we grasp too readily at the tangible, the known, the verifiable for our assurance and support, for our direction and motivation. Help us even in this hour to find the current of your spirit, which enlivens our weary souls, which charges our tentative steps, which emboldens our wary actions and brings confidence to our faith. We offer ourselves before you as willing believers in Christ's resurrection, ready to bear witness to your transforming power, as we pray collectively in the words that you have taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.
going to ask us to do something which contravenes <coughs> all practice of public events. Okay. I'm going to ask you to take out your mobile phones. Yes? Take them out. Now I'm going to do something even more radical. I'm going to ask you to actually turn them on. Turn them on. Now something even more extraordinary. I want you to actually get an internet signal. On your phones, go to either your, your free data or the, I think it's honors, um, yeah, Hilton Honors or Honors Hilton, one of the two. And if you go Honors Hilton, you'll then need to go into the the, the free one, um, the complimentary. You might need a smartphone. Okay. I'm not expecting every single person has one, but those of you who have your mobile, get an internet signal. Radical as this sounds. Oh, listen to all these noises. These are, the one, these are the ones they tell us not to uh, display during public events. Okay, now, in the true tradition of radical moves following Jesus and onwards, I'm going to make one more radical move here. Those of you who have children, I'm going to ask you to give your mobile phone to your children. <laughs> okay. Now, those of you who've got a mobile phone, this is heaven for you, I know. I want you to Google something. I want you to Google what is the box office return of Avengers Infinity War so far. <laughs> Avengers Infinity War. If you don't know what that is, your head is in the cultural sands. It is the most money-making movie right now. But how much is it making? 1.5 billion USD. 1.5 billion USD. One, look at how fast that came. Yeah. 1.5 billion dollars American so far. How, Carl, how long has it been open? Two or three weeks. 1.5 billion. Thank you, Adi. Adi, what was the source? What, give us the source of that piece of information. What was the, the URL? What, who, who gave you that piece of information? Okay, the website says... Uh, I just have to go to the Forbes.com, okay. So we've got several different um, uh, specialty sites that can give us this kind of information. Some of them can actually granulate it down to a day-by-day -day intake. Okay, let's try something else. Let's Google, how do you make the best chocolate bars? Okay, Google that in. How do you make the best chocolate bars? Okay. This, this I want to, someone under the age of 15 to tell me. 
<laughs> tell me who is telling us how to make the best chocolate bars. Don't tell us how to make them. That would take the rest of the service. <laughs> who tells us how to make the best chocolate bars? Numerous websites. Numerous websites. Not surprising. Can you give us one person who claims expertise in this? Ah, the BBC. David Levovich. David Levovich, yes. He's the one that keeps consistently coming on top when I Google that. Yes. Okay. Now let's do one a little more difficult. These are more information sites. And we have our specialty sites for this kind of information. Raw data in this case, or a, a recipe. How did the Allies win the Second World War? Let's Google that one. How did the Okay, but let's find out who the experts are on this. What websites are claiming to tell us how the Allies won the Second World War? BBC again. My goodness, the BBC dominates. BBC history, anybody else? War History Online. War History Online? Excellent. Anybody else? Quora. Quora. Quora is quite a popular site for this kind of information. Sorry? E-notes. Yes. Good source for cheaters. UK even worse source for cheaters. Okay. Well, we all are very familiar with this activity. We Google something, we do this quite regularly, when we want to know any kind of information, or particularly when we want specialty information. Something a little more difficult. But, how reliable is this information? Let's try one last Google. And I want you to put in these words precisely to those of you who've got your, your Google open. Does God exist? Does God exist? And those of you who are getting something, I would like you to tell me tell me who are the experts on this this subject? Wikipedia. Okay. Sorry, Carl? Okay, so we have some philosophers. Who else? Reasonable faith. Reasonable faith. Good. Humanism for schools. Very interesting. Humanism for schools. Reasonable faith. Reasonable faith. Pardon me. Wikipedia. Yet again. Okay. Well, we can see the plethora of opinions that come up on Google, <coughs> on any topic, on every topic, including our most difficult ones. Does God exist? Now, the challenge for us here is to say, well, should we go to any of these links, what do we expect to find? Do we expect to find truth? Do we expect to find precise, accurate, reliable knowledge? I suspect in our first question, we would say, 
1.5 million is probably a good figure to work with, though that will be climbing by the second. How to make a chocolate bar is probably also reliable if we trust the chef whose site we've gone on to. How the Allies won the Second World War will differ hugely across the mass spectrum of, of sites that we would come across. And then we get to the tricky one. Does God exist? Can the internet furnish us an appropriate answer? Is there a specialty, an expert out there who can give us an answer to that question? And just the manifold amount of sites that we see already tell us that the internet has its limits. But more importantly, the kind of knowledge that it shows, that it gives to us, ready to hand, in seconds. I'm surprised that was like two seconds, Adi. You have a good internet link, obviously. Uh, that came up with the first answer. Seconds, the answer is there. But the kind of knowledge it is giving us is not the kind that can answer some of our most important questions. What we'll be talking about a little later is the nature of the kind of knowledge that we trade in today through our devices versus the nature of the kind of knowledge that we as Christians and as believers have. And there's a huge division between the knowledge of our world through data and the knowledge that we cannot see or download. And that requires a different position, a different understanding a different stance as believers in faith. Keep that in mind next time you Google some of your more difficult questions. What you get there is not necessarily knowledge, and probably not knowledge, in the most accurate and verifiable sense, because some knowledge can't be verified through the Internet. Let us sing the song, If You Believe and I Believe, a short song with words in our sheet that we'll sing twice. <laughs>
Our first reading this morning comes from Acts uh, chapter 1 at verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. In at verse 21. Therefore it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us, for one of these must become a witness with us in his resurrection, of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias, Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. And then at 1 John chapter 5. We accept human testimony. But God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about the Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life.
experts, specialists, leading authorities. They surround us everywhere. Our media is oversaturated with them. Every news program we turn on has a battery of experts called in to shed light on the latest news story, the big lead item. Any book of importance to justify its own authority trades on a host of other ruling experts. And now we have the internet. That repository of all expertise. The supposed democratization of all specialty knowledge. And in a couple of clips, clicks or taps or commands to Alexa, we too can become experts, if only micro-experts. And all this proliferation begs the question, what is an expert? And why have we become so obsessed with them? Well, I suppose we shouldn't be too surprised. We do have close to 8 billion people living on our globe right now. And the growth of education has certainly had its effect. We would have had an explosion in the numbers of fields of knowledge. While each field shrinks with greater and greater specialization. But though we feel more and more distanced from the minutia of any one field, technology has laid it all bare before us. And it will continue to expose and make accessible all knowledge, even if the majority of us can't grasp it. Especially now as we move into the era of Big data. Vast amounts of accumulated knowledge or data made available even right down to our mobile phones. But increasingly understandable to and manipulable by only a select few. Hence, we feel our need for the expert. We've all succumbed to this necessity. Think for a moment how many times you catch yourself stumped by a question of trivia, immediately turning to your mobile phone and Googling the answer. It's not only a question of feeling compelled to know, it's the question of feeling compelled to know now, immediately. Immediate access to information, that is the mantra of today's society. But all obsessions breed suspicions. And the rise of the expert has, in recent times, led to the fall of the expert. Those paraded on our television screens have proven time and time again to be untrustworthy, to be off the mark, or to be just plain wrong. Think of the experts in economics or politics, or polling. 
to name but some of the more obvious fields of distrust. Or think of Cambridge Analytics. The more knowledge we seem to accumulate, the more difficult it seems to be precise with it, to be accurate with it, to be responsible with it. It's one of our great ironies. We have more knowledge at our fingertips than ever before and less assurance of how it ought to be appropriated. And so our expertise devolves into opinion. And this, in turn, spawns our latest social pestilence, fake news. Is it any wonder our skepticism? What we call experts are really just opinion makers. So what then can we say the expert truly is? The best definition I have heard is this. An expert is a person that has his or her, his or her ignorance well organized. <laughs> Part of our problem, of course, is the reduction of what constitutes knowledge these days. The clue is in the term we've been throwing around already, data. We're all obsessed with data. We swim in it. It's everywhere. It's even here in the air that we breathe. This data is currently being transmitted to our various phones and devices. And this ubiquity, which is a kind of spiritual omnipresence, leads us to mistake data for knowledge so that our mode of accessing knowledge is no longer through understanding but through informatics. Data has become our new God. As we move towards Pentecost next Sunday... That event in the infant Christian experience by which the story of the Tower of Babel is inverted and a proliferation of languages spread across the believers, let us ask this question. Who today, in light of the world we've just described, are our experts on religion? And more to the point... Who are our experts on faith? Or what could it possibly mean to be an expert on faith now in this world that we have inherited, this digital age we move into? The Bible passage Ken read to us from the book of Acts is part of the lectionary cycle for this week. And I do wonder how many preachers have elected to preach on it. I wonder in my own folly in choosing to preach on it. But perhaps we can see the passage in this light. The move from disciples to apostles is the making of our earliest experts 
on Christianity. Now, we know that the 12 disciples, as the inner circle of followers during Jesus' short ministry, were hardly experts. In fact, they showed repeated ignorance, obtuseness, or bafflement about what Jesus was trying to say. And we know there is that radical tradition that claims of all the 12 disciples, Judas was the only one who got it. The only expert, as it were, since he knew that Jesus had to die. Now, of course, the writer of Acts does not support that view. Even if he sees the betrayal as scripturally foretold, What was important for Luke was the proper succession of those who had been with Jesus, who accompanied Jesus throughout his entire career, right through his death and its aftermath. And the criteria here was not expertise, not even knowledge in any traditional sense. From verse 21 we read, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us to his resurrection. The candidates here Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also known as Justice, and Matthias were not required to sit down to a test. Describe the five key points in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Explain the parable of the sower. Jesus foretold his death to us many times exegete these words using his ministry as support. There was none of that. Expertise was not required. Rather, witness. Witness to the resurrection. In the shift to apostleship from discipleship, we have the making of those with authority. But an authority not based on accumulated knowledge. Certainly not on intelligence, in every sense of that word. Judas, of course, was the one who carried intelligence on the ground. Rather, it was based on being present with Jesus during his itinerant ministry, and more importantly, of having witnessed his resurrection. Hence, no test, no popularity vote, but a drawing of lots. So the expertise here was based on this. One, they had actually physically seen the risen Christ. And two, 
they had received the Holy Spirit. Those two points were what was essential. From there they would go on as apostles, and this becomes the working mandate of apostleship here in the early moments of the Christian religion, to set the norms of doctrine and fellowship and to provide the authentic interpretation of the Lord, which, of course, the rest of the book of Acts unfolds. Well, that is a relief, some of you might say, because I'm no expert. I do not know all the theological fine points of Jesus' words, never mind the rest of the scriptures. Okay? But before we get too comfortable, let's look at the situation a little closer. They are not experts, but witnesses. But witnesses of what? of Jesus' deeds and of his resurrection. But this, even here in Acts, is empirical witness. They literally witness Jesus alive and his crucifixion and his post-resurrection appearance. This is what brings their knowledge and their authority but brings it back to the factual again. The factual that once again marks our world. But what about us? We are not factual witnesses in this sense. Even Jesus acknowledged this in that famous post-resurrection appearance with Thomas the Doubter. What was the first thing Jesus said upon Thomas's physical touch into the side of Jesus? Jesus said, you have believed because you have seen me. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. So how exactly are we blessed? we might rightfully ask. On what can our authority, should we claim that we can have any, now be based? Just what exactly are we witnesses to in our challenging day and age? The day, the age of big data. Society's new divine power. Unlike the Catholic tradition, Protestantism has no central place for authority. It never has. That was its whole point in protesting. And the great edifices of Protestant theology have since eroded and are no longer really being constructed. I wonder, can anyone here name a prominent living theologian now? 
the Protestant propensity is towards individual faith, or in its more troubling side, individualism. Now, of course, preachers still preach across all Protestant denominations, but they preach largely for their own congregation, not for the entire flock of believers. And they, of course, carry a strong pastoral role. And this is right. But we would never say, and I doubt anyone in that role, even our own minister would say, they are experts on their religion. Well, what do the experts on religion say today? As someone who works among these so-called experts, shrinking though they might be, I can tell you this much. There is general agreement on the following points. We live in a post-Christendom, which is to say the West is no longer informed by the paradigm of the Christian faith, either in its centers of authority and power or in its influential cultural figures or even in its scientific models. I think if these experts were to characterize the last historical periods, they might say this. The 19th century was the loss of Christianity's self-evidence. The 20th century was the loss of Christianity's credibility. And now the 21st century is the loss of Christianity's remaining influence. Another point. The church continues a rapid statistical decline throughout the West. The remaining churches face a growing dilemma. How to remain relevant to the coming generations. And yet, and this too is a point of agreement, despite this apparent apocalyptic picture, our culture continues to betray a fascination with even a need for that which exceeds the empirical or the seen, the factual. And if you're looking for any pop cultural evidence of this, just look at the superhero franchises, which my boys are obsessed with. Well, that's what the experts on religion say. And I think it is to our peril if we ignore their thoughts. But that is expert opinion on religion. What does it mean to be an expert on faith? That is another matter. And here we are all together, all on the same level field.
And this, I suggest, is where our Bible passages come into their own. To be an expert on faith is to be a witness. To have, as the first John passage says, testimony. But since we are not factual witnesses in the sense of Barsabbas or of Matthias, just what again are we testifying to? In my opinion, we now need to be witnesses to the Christendom that once was. A Christendom, it has to be said, that was not all glory, that had strengths and weaknesses, and some very dark moments indeed, even in the specific name of our religion. We need to testify to our implication in these moments, but also to a hope that exceeded them. If nothing else, we need to be witness to a reality beyond the so-called factual, and certainly beyond data. The invisible spirit that filled the air was not just downloadable, not just digitalized bits of information. Rather, Christendom's spirit was something that purposed our lives. And we need still to give testimony to such a reality. But more. For any kind of Christendom, theocracy, etc., is hardly a panacea. We need to be witnesses to the spirit, the spirit of Acts 2, of Pentecost, as it made manifest in word and action, and as it makes manifest itself now. And this becomes our own apostleship, as we give witness to a risen Christ whom we have seen, as John says, with our hearts. To see with our hearts is not to see passively, but to engage ourselves in the work of the Spirit as the apostles did in the book of Acts. As John says in his epistle, the Spirit is the one that testifies. The Spirit is the truth. And this for us, who have not seen with our eyes, means to claim the power of resurrection towards fellowship with all. We're in this together. All Christians, all faiths, all ethics, all languages. The change is not backwards to some kind of Christendom or even some kind of early church. Nor is the change purely forward. The change is to usher in a reality that stands 
outside of backwards and forwards. An outside that is an unseen and that completes our fulfillment. The second passage Ken read to us is how John closes his first epistle. Listen closely to how he opens that epistle. 1 John 1.1 We declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was revealed and we have seen and testify to it and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. We declare to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. To have fellowship with one another is to have fellowship with the Creator God and His Son by means of His Spirit. And this completes our joy. If we strive for expertise in anything, it is in this completion of this fellowship as joy. Amen. We sing the hymn appropriately, Spirit of God.
brothers and sisters, it is, it is our time to pray together. And this time I am not using my own words, but the words of a brother in Christ, one Bruce Pruer. Now, when I was told that I was to use someone else's words, guess where I looked? Well, you can guess. I looked at the internet. <laughs> and I thought, oh, maybe just there'll be a few. But no, there was a sea of prayers, which tells us that if we're stuck, that's somewhere to go. So I cast my net out into the sea, and I drew out this prayer. And we are privileged to hear the words of a fellow religionist. I don't know where he comes from. We don't know him. But again, we are privileged to use his words and thoughts. Now, this is one of those prayers where there's actually a response. And I don't often get to say this. So when I say, hear their prayers, dear Lord, would you be kind enough to reply and make us instruments of your peace. Thank you. So, with love to Bruce Brewer, brothers and sisters, let us pray. From around the world, we hear many children crying, Oh God, crying for food and drink, and someone to enfold them in loving arms. Hear their prayers, dear Lord, and make us instruments of your peace. We see the desolate eyes of refugees, O God, plodding along war-devastated roads, or looking from transit camps and from behind barbed wire for glimmers of hope. Hear their prayers, dear Lord, and make us instruments of your peace. We read about the abused sisters and brothers, O God, cringing from family violence or suffering in paddy wagons and jails or assaulted in their own homes by strangers. Hear their prayers, dear Lord, and make us instruments of your peace. We hear the sobbing of the broken-hearted, O God, Betrayed by spouse or lover, deserted by parents, watching at the bed of the dying, or following a hearse to the cemetery. Hear their prayers, dear Lord, and make us instruments of your peace. We know about the disasters that afflict others, O God, the bodies mangled in road accidents, those devastated by disease or war, and the minds that have cracked under pressure. Hear their prayers, dear Lord, and make us instruments of your peace. We read about your church, O God, in some places overcrowding its buildings, in others battling to maintain services, or in some countries meeting secretly behind closed doors. Hear their prayers, dear Lord, and make us instruments of your peace. 
We look on the faces of both friends and enemies, O God. Some of our friends are doing it hard, while enemies seem to be getting it easy. Yet all are souls for whom Christ died. Hear their prayers, dear Lord, and make us instruments of your peace. Holy friend, while we have been praying, you have been busy answering our petitions with an ineffable wisdom and an indefatigable love. Thank you. Through Christ Jesus, our Saviour. Amen. ask these gifts now to be received not as a token gesture of our piety nor as a measure of our faith and certainly not as a commercial transaction but as a response to the needs of your work and your ministry in our world both local and global amen our final hymn is christ be our light again if you are able please stand with us and sing as the words are printed in your order of service.
Blessing as found on our sheets. Join with me in the bold. Lord, send your spirit to fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your divine love. Come, Holy Spirit. Send forth your spirit into all creation and you shall renew the face of the earth. Come, Holy Spirit. Through your spirit we have knowledge and wisdom to do the work of the resurrection. Come, Holy Spirit. Spirit. 